bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be able to gather together like this as your children. We thank you for the truth of your word that sets us free. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us and directs us and convicts us. Uh, Father, we're just so grateful you haven't just left us alone, so to speak, but you've given us everything we could have to seek you and know you if we are willing. So, Father, we ask that you bless our congregation, especially those who are sick and struggling right now. You know who they are. Uh, bless us all as we continue to uh, seek your truth and help us understand your word tonight by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. All right, we're nothing more than vessels of mercy, and I'm feeling like it tonight. A little bit tired, but that's a good thing, so just uh, keep me in prayer, and uh, it's a good thing because it's easy to get out of the way and let the Spirit do the talking. So I hope this series has been good for you, um, and I think the message has been loud and clear from the Spirit. And also the message uh, to me, and I was just thinking about it before service, has been appreciation. And that's been coming up over and over and over throughout the years, in and out of our series, right? Appreciation and thankfulness. Um, that perspective is like so vital to having peace, uh, to, to growing, to being sanctified. So appreciation for God's mercy has kind of been in the forefront. And that the Lord wants so badly to set us free from ourselves. We're our own worst enemies. Uh, and each of us in different ways, but we all have that in common, for sure. We're our own worst enemies. We let the flesh get the best of us. But the Lord did everything necessary on the cross to set us free, as we know. And with this series, he's given us a perspective into his word to help us see our total reliance on his mercy. I hope that's what you're getting out of this more than you maybe realized it before the series. Uh, our total reliance on his mercy. And I hope we accept that within our own hearts for each of us. Because it is very personal, um, kind of like a one-on-one -on -one accounting with, uh, with the Lord, between us and the Lord. Uh, do we continue on in self-righteousness? Do we hold on to certain things where we seek credit? Or are we going to, between us and him, drop that and uh, accept our full reliance upon him? So we've been talking recently about our wretched basements. His spirit is reminding us of our own horribleness that he saved us from, even of the good we did in the past that was dressing up the pig in an attempt to earn God's favor. And we don't think about that when we think about our wretched basements. But that is, as we've been seeing from Scripture, in our basements, just as disgusting to God as our sin. Um, and it's all there that God's shining a light on right now for us each to see and accept. And here's the other thing, is that it's unattainable for us to understand all of our wretchedness. We, we, we can't even see or fathom all of our wretchedness 
how ugly we really are from God's point of view. And thank God, because we'd probably all just quit. We'd probably go run, hide in a hole somewhere. So, you know, he lets us see what we need to see. By grace, he gives us a little at a time, etc. But uh, if we really saw our wretchedness that the cross saved us from, again, we'd just be blown away. One thing that Spirit has been convincing us of is that we are all fallen. That's where we started from. That's where we are without Christ. As a believer, we could still go back to the flesh, so to speak. We're just fallen. Hopeless. And we need the Word to penetrate our souls every day because we've been abused and brainwashed by the world our whole lives. I mean, if we, could, if we could be shown like a rerun or if God like showed us, let's say, movie clips from age three when we started, you know, seeing things, right? Watching TV and all this, right? If he could show us the number of things that we were being uh, brainwashed into, especially through media, but even through certain family or friends or situations in life, things that are accepted in society, uh, oof, I mean, crazy how we've been brainwashed, more than we think and realize that we have been, is the point. So on the board, this came out on Sunday. We've been deceived from childhood that we just aren't all that bad. And therefore, here's the dangerous consequence, we don't think we're fully dependent upon God's grace, God's mercy. We don't think we're fully dependent. We are fully dependent whether we realize it or not. God wants us to realize it and give him all the credit. But we've been deceived in a bad way. You know, I have a friend that thinks everything's all right, so to speak, with what they're doing um, and ignoring God's word and that they don't, they don't think they've been brainwashed by the world. And that's even worse. So we tend to think, or the flesh does, that there's an in-between place that we can have a part in God's work. And Satan's doing a good job in this world system of persuading people to trust in themselves. Sometimes he uses religion to do that. Sometimes he doesn't. He uses secular stuff. But he's just persuading man that he's just good enough and he can be better on his own if he just tries. People in the world say often, for example, let's just be better. Let's pay it forward. Let's show people that man can be good. We're not really this way. You know, when you see this stuff on the news, we're not really this way, are we? Yeah, we are, especially given the right circumstances. And the problem is they don't realize the root of the problem. What's the root of the problem? It's an unsolvable place that we come from called being fallen, trapped in sin. So we saw uh, a little comment here from A.W. Pink from his book, The Total Depravity of Man. Divisions and discords, hatred and bloodshed cannot be banished while human nature is what it is. That's a really good way to put it. These things will never go away while human nature is what it is. The only light in this world is that when we as Christians live in the light, we live in the new nature, right? We don't live in the human nature that we still carry around, but we don't live in it. 
hopefully, we're living in the light. That's the only light in this world. But the fact is, until Christ corrects everything once for all and starts, you know, the millennial reign, for example, and unbelievers are out of the way, at least we'll have a perfect environment, but uh, still going to be sin existing in that period. Until the Lord corrects it all, until we're in heaven (laughs) with new natures that cannot sin, there's going to be divisions, discords, hatred, and bloodshed. And he goes on to say, but during the past century, the steady trend of a deteriorating Christendom has been to underrate the evil of sin and overrate the moral capabilities of men. And again, Pink wrote this in the early 1900s. So he was already starting to see this then. Imagine if he was alive right now. I think about that quite often. Imagine if some of the preachers from the 1800s, early 1900s, who are complaining about the same things we are, if they were alive right now, they'd just freak out, right? I mean, it's like going through a time capsule, and obviously it helps to gradually see these things, right? But 100 years later, wow, what a change in our country even. The message coming from within many churches about the moral capabilities of man is in direct contrast to the Word of God. It's not totally relying on the mercy of God, for example. When nothing without the Lord, to accept this is to be set free by it, knowing it does not depend upon us, but upon God who is merciful. Thank God. We've seen that in Romans 9. So instead of propping up self, we should be bowed low at the foot of the cross, knowing our total depravity. In other words, this is even the way to live as a believer. The proper attitude of humility, the proper attitude of we are nothing without the Lord. And that's what sets us free from ourselves, from our own striving. Trying to do it ourselves in some way. So to accept this truth on the board gives us freedom from the chains of self-righteousness. But sometimes it takes time to accept this on the board because the flesh is always nagging at you. You're not as bad as, you know, they're saying. A question came up on Sunday. If God saved us by grace through faith, then why do we go forward in life trying to impress God with our flesh? Why do we do that? Because we do. Some of us to different degrees, in different manners. But if we're saved by grace through faith, why do we go forward in life trying to impress God with our flesh, as though it's by works, as we saw in Galatians? And even the more important question from Sunday, if you are being perfected by the flesh in some way, Is it because we don't believe God's love for us? I shared my personal experience with this on Sunday and how I've recently come to a point where I've accepted that Jesus loved me right where I am in spite of the ugliness of my weaknesses that I still tend to want to hide or deny, be in denial of, let's say. How foolish, right? If we're propping up self we're being perfected by the flesh in some way. So we might be wise to ask ourselves if we really believe the love God has for us. 
And if you don't, or if you struggle with it, go back to the cross. And here's an interesting phenomenon on the board that we, we believers do or fall into. The love that Jesus proved he has for us is the same love that God has for us, since they are one and the same. John 14, 9 through 10a. Think about this. Does anyone have trouble believing that Jesus loved them? I guess you don't have to answer, but I'm assuming no. For me, it's much easier to believe Jesus Christ loved me just because I see what he did and who he was as a person, right? As a person, living out life. It's much easier for me to believe he loved me than, than God loves me or that the Father loves me. There's still a mystery there. But Jesus said there shouldn't be a mystery there. That's the killer. He said, um, are you going to believe me yet? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's almost like it's, it's our unbelief, right? Lord, help my unbelief. On the board in John 14, 9 through 10a in the NIV, and you might want to put your name in there for Philip if it helps. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So even the disciples fell into this. That's why they're so encouraging, as we've learned. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Comes back to faith. We might say, don't you believe the Father loves you if the Son has shown you such indescribable love by going to the cross? Why don't we then? Again, the point on the board, let's go back there. The love that Jesus proved, he proved he has for us once for all. That's the same love that God has for us because they're one and the same person. According to Jesus. Recently, I read uh, Matthew chapter 6 in my Bible reading. And I was blown away. You know, you got to love how God um, gives you a different perspective at different times in your life. And I read the, ended up reading this chapter three times in a row. And I was blown away. What I saw, at least at this time, from the Spirit was Jesus almost pleading with us to believe the Father is a good Father and He wants to be intimate with us. Almost, almost uh, pleading with us to trust Him, trust the Father. So I, I just suggest to you, if you want to try it, go read Matthew 6 a few times in a row and just see that what Jesus is saying. He's like encouraging us. He's like, will you believe what I'm telling you about how good the Father is? Just like in John 14 we just read, the same concept. So let's also remember something else, that God is not shocked at our lack of faith in his love. He's not surprised. The Lord knows the baggage we carry around. He relates personally. He's been on earth. He's been in a human body, being attacked by temptations. So he understands our weakness. He's not shocked by our lack of faith in his love, even though he wishes we had more. 
but part of it is because on the board, as we've been seeing, the flesh is schizophrenic. And despite its desire to sin and rebel, it also wants to put on a good show and appear good to God and man. Galatians 6, 12a. And this is part of the mystery of our wretchedness. We saw examples on Sunday, like how else can you explain except for our fallen sinful nature, how man can be judgmental and yet do the same things he's judging others for. How else do you explain that? What's, what's our problem? Look, we're sick. How else can you explain how man can show love to someone and also steal from the same person? How else can you explain how man can gossip about someone and also help them in the same area that he's criticizing the day before. It's the flesh. It's our wretchedness. That's part of the mystery of iniquity. So, again, instead of holding on to something, like uh, some little piece of goodness, thinking that you know we're a good person compared to other people, whatever it is, we have to drop it like a stone. Again, the flesh lives in the sphere of death. That's where it resides. That's what it likes to abide in the darkness with no hope of fixing itself. And until you believe that in your own heart, you won't appreciate the glory of God's mercy in your life. So despite our being deceived at times by the flesh, the Spirit has graciously encouraged us to not listen to the flesh, but instead listen to and believe the word of God and the love of God, as Jesus was just talking about. Let the love of God fuel you. Even if you don't understand it fully, which we never will till the day we die, but even as you don't understand the love of God fully, what you do know about the love of God, or maybe better said, what you do know about the love of Christ through what he did, let that fuel you to be more humble and want to learn more of his perspective. And despite the doubts the flesh is feeding you, even right now maybe, in Bible class, God loves you just the way you are. That may sound basic, but uh, we need to hear it sometimes. Remember how we're one of a kind? The Spirit was on that tangent for a while, that you're unique, that God made you unique. There's not, nobody on the earth like you. Not a one. Thank God, right? But there's not. So, like, think about that. Think about the way God personally designed you, created you, and loves you the way you are because he made you the way you are. Yeah, he doesn't love our sin, but he loves our person. He loves our uniqueness. He loves our personality that he gave us. And he didn't ask you to improve yourself before he loved you. Just look at Jesus hanging with the sinners, right? So it's, it should be, I hope, a relief to see that he loves us despite the ugliness of our weaknesses. And that we can just honestly accept that with the faith of a child instead of doubting the Father all the time. We also saw from Mr. Pink, until we really behold the horror of the pit in which by nature we lie, we can never properly appreciate Christ's so great salvation. 
So again, this is a good exercise. It's healthy. It's uncomfortable at times, but it's healthy. Try sharing things from the pulpit. You know, your own weaknesses that the Spirit makes past to do or made me do on Sunday. He's got another one coming up tonight if we have time. I'm going to try to go slower now. But uh, we don't, we don't want to admit our wretchedness, but it's healthy. It's good. And it's freeing in the process. So we're looking at our wretched basements so we can be more grateful of God's mercy, the degree of God's mercy. And on the board, we saw this on Sunday, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. However, in kindness, and that's all it was. If you want to say mercy, put mercy in there. But in kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. So go again to Romans 9, verse 14. As we wrap up this series tonight, unless the Spirit has other plans, Romans 9, 14. The only way to be closer to God and have more peace is to be brought down low. And even though we don't like it at first. It's like a peaceful place to reside. You know, um, sometimes you might just feel like rolling up in a ball on the floor and praying that way. And that, that place, it's, it's a place like of surrender and, and ends up being a place of peace. Even though the flesh doesn't want to do that, that's how we get closer to God. Because we're, we're literally throwing it all on Him. We're admitting our total inability to do anything good on our own. So Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And go to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That is just a crazy scene. As you read verse 22 through to 26, what's God saying? I'm going to go after the, the lowly. I'm going to go after the worst. Um, I'm going to go from, I'm going to show total undeserved kindness upon vessels of wrath that deserve destruction. And I'm going to take them all the way to the top, to the penthouse, undeservedly. I'm going to call them my sons even. What God has done is absolutely crazy. 
beyond human comprehension. And it also shows on the board again that we're mercy dependent. 100%. Thank God he is a good God, reaching down to the lowly to reveal the riches of his glory. And thank God that he's willing to take sinful, evil men like us, selfish, prideful, judgmental, immoral. We could go on and on and on. And he makes us into sons of the living God. What an awesome God we have. So as we close this series, let's talk a little bit more about what it really means to be a vessel of mercy. Uh, First of all, in Romans 9, we've just seen that a vessel speaks of a creation of God, in this case illustrated by a lump of clay being made into a piece of pottery. Pretty appropriate, you know, with man being formed from the dust of the ground, right, in Genesis. So we're illustrated by being a lump of clay molded into a piece of pottery by the potter. So once again, we're mercy dependent. God makes each creation of his for certain purposes that will ultimately bring him glory. And we are nothing more, literally, nothing more than vessels at the mercy of the potter's hands. (laughs) What can a piece of clay do? Can a piece of clay run away? Say, I don't like what you're thinking of making me right now. There's nothing that can be done, nothing. So therefore, it's 100% God's mercy that we depend on. And don't forget, mercy means compassion in the Greek. God chose by his sovereign grace to transform us from vessels of wrath who unequivocally deserve judgment into vessels of mercy. So he had compassion on us even though we're guilty of the sin and rebellion against him. And on Sunday, we saw the example of a judge in the courtroom. So the judge has the final say. The jury's already decided you're guilty. And the sentencing is totally in the hands of the judge and his wisdom. Hopefully, his mercy. What happens to the rest of your life, or in this case, in the spiritual realm, what happens to the rest of your eternity is totally his call, totally in his hands. You can do nothing about it. That's how helpless we are. That's how reliant we are on God's mercy. And as we saw on Sunday, the only recourse, both at salvation and in sanctification, is to fall upon the mercy of the court, right? On the board. Throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. God's glory is his mercy and grace and compassion. So says Holy Scripture. Exodus 33, 19 through 20. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Those, that's where God is speaking with Moses. And we're not going to read these tonight. If you want to go home and read them on your own. But uh, this is where he describes and answers Moses' question. Show me your glory. And then Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. We're not going to go there, but... That's where he talks about the riches of his glory being his grace to the praise of his glory, of his grace. We often think of, again, God's power, God's uh, omnipotence, his wisdom. He knows all things. That's his glory, right? Let's read those scriptures and find out. But we're totally helpless and hopeless without his mercy acting on our behalf. 
So the best thing we can ever do is bow down and pray for mercy, just like the humble tax collector did in Luke 18. That's at the point of salvation, and that's while we live as a believer, as we're going through sanctification. Best thing we can do. And if we have the right perspective, we can do nothing but be overwhelmed at his kindness and compassion. Where is God taking us to again? Thankfulness, appreciation on the board. Give thanks for his mercy. The spiritual life can be so simple. So simple, right? 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray, give thanks in all things. Give thanks for his mercy. He's plucked us out of the fire that we deserve, made us into new creatures, made us into vessels of his mercy, and even granted us the faith in his son to accept it. So what can we say? That's what the Spirit's saying to us. What can we say? What are you going to say about that? We can't say anything. We're better off saying nothing. We're better off sitting back and abiding in His love, as Jesus said. Just abide in the Father's love. Believe the love that the Father has for you. It's the same love I have for you. And give the Lord all, all, the, all of His due. Maybe this is one reason the book of Proverbs says a a wise man keeps his mouth shut. A wise man. And Job did what he did at the end of his testing. So we're going to go on this theme for a little bit here. Go to Job 42, verse 1. Job 42, 1. When we come to the conclusion that we're totally dependent upon God's mercy... And then, on top of it, he actually did it. He was merciful to the nth degree. We're much better off just sitting back and enjoying uh, his love, his mercy, his grace, keeping our mouths shut. Job 42.1 Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes." And then we have a similar wisdom coming from the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon. Go to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. If anyone had wisdom, it was Solomon. And he said, let your words be few. Ecclesiastes 5, 1. And this brings together quite a few... um, Topics that we've been learning over the last year or so. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Do you want to be the one with many dreams and many words to God? Or is that a mistake? How about verse uh, 2, let your words be few. Rather, fear God. So God's looking to give us a proper attitude in our hearts. What's the attitude of your heart? He wants it to be humility, true humility. We should be honoring God's mercy towards us, not taking it for granted. We should appreciate God's mercy towards us, not test it. Not uh, almost mock it by going to live for self or taking some credit ourselves. Go to Hebrews 4, verse 12. So seeing that God wants the attitude of our heart to be humility... And seeing a verse like Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, that's what it's designed to do, to make us totally dependent upon his mercy. Because he knows everything. That wretched basement is known better by him than yourself. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now you should be even more dependent on his mercy. If you realize and you believe that he sees things that you don't want him to see, even things you've been in denial over, I don't really have that problem or that weakness. When you realize he sees everything and you are finally willing to admit that, then you have to rely on his mercy 100%. That's the direction he's taken us towards. On the board, do we fully appreciate the pure mercy we've been shown by the God of all glory? 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, you can turn there. And 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 26. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Excuse me. I'll take off the microphone next time. <laughs> so do we fully appreci appreciate the pure mercy we've been shown? That's God's glory. And who did he show it to? Vessels. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we received mercy, Paul says, we do not lose heart. As we received mercy, we do not lose heart. God's mercy is like our foundation, and Paul knew it. And that's the platform that we can go forward in and live our lives for Christ from, that place of mercy. 
So again, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then he says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How can we preach ourselves or boast in ourselves whatsoever, considering God's mercy towards our wretchedness? We can't do it. But if anyone didn't do it, it was Paul because he knew what he was saved from. He said, I'm the worst of all sinners, right? We know his background. So he's like, I'm not going to preach myself. I know how much mercy I've been shown. And then verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure, His light, His glory. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Earthen vessels. We have the light of the creator of the universe. We have the glory of God in earthen vessels. A lowly clay pot. God's glory, God's light, God's goodness in dwelling a weak, fragile vessel like, uh, like us. And this is what makes Satan so upset. He's like, how can you promote them? They're a clay pot. How can you fill them with your glory? Look at me. Again, what is it? It's all to God's glory, right? How, can, how could God get any more glory than to bring, down, to bring up the lowliest? To fill the lowliest. That's what he does. That's why his glory is his grace. And then what happens through us? Supernatural things. Especially when we admit our depravity. And that we're all totally dependent on his mercy. He's lit up dark, empty, earthen vessels. Again, look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. May it not be of ourselves. May it not be our self-righteousness. The power will be of God. That only comes when you're willing to admit your total depravity. How can we possibly take any credit when we came from a lump of clay? Are you going to boast in the fact that you're brown? How brown you are? Are you going to boast how smooth you are as a pot? And if so, who made you that way? Who gave you whatever you have? Who gave you any good qualities you have? If it's all from him, how can we boast about anything? Who graciously granted you repentance and faith? 
to accept his divine offer. So how can we boast in anything? On the board, we are as frail as a clay pot that could fall to the ground and be completely shattered. Oh, we, <laughs> we act strong sometimes, don't we? When things are going well, pretty much, and we finally start figuring something out or we're feeling good. So we think we're strong. And then God just has to do one little thing in our life and we're like falling apart. Right? Could be health, could be emotional, relationship thing, uh, financial situation. <laughs> and you realize you're like on the edge and you're about to fall and be shattered. How can we boast about anything good we have, especially because he's the one that granted it to us? So to keep that perspective of the frail clay pot is very wise. And you know what God can do then? He can bless us because he gives grace to the humble. So simple, right? The Lord, by his mercy, holds us up and holds us together and even fills us up with anything good. And Holy Scripture also says the Lord is even, to, even able to make us stand despite our sins and failures. Turn to Romans 14, verse 4. Romans 14, 4. The Lord is even able to make us stand despite our sins and failures. By His grace and mercy and compassion, all motivated by His love. And this has been an underlying theme too, so we should probably pay attention because this idea has come up earlier this week. Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is why we can't judge one another. Kind of back to that schizophrenia of the flesh, right? We judge someone, and then we do the same thing we just judged them for the next day. How about we keep the mouth shut, and we go about our own business, and instead of judging people, we pray for them, because we don't know all the details 99% of the time anyway. We all have our areas of sin. We all fall flat on our faces at times. So how can we judge our brother? We have no right. And on the board in Proverbs 24:16a, for the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Who do you think picks him up? Who do you think picks you up? You know who picks you up when you fall flat on your face. So why do you think it's different for your brother? It's God's power within us that gets us up. So by this point, I hope thinking about God's mercy towards you is overwhelming to you. And not necessarily emotionally, but even on the sheer facts of the case. If you just step back and look at the big picture. Seeing the pure mercy of the judge at whose hands you were totally vulnerable and helpless and guilty. And if you're not understanding the depth of this, you need to go home and think about this and talk to the Lord about this. You're the one missing out if you don't. You're the one that won't be set free if you don't lay it all out with him, before him. 
So we all need to find a quiet place and keeping our mouths shut, simply dwell on the greatness of his mercy, the glory of his mercy towards us, wretched sinners. Dwell on the fact that you're nothing more than a vessel of mercy and that he doesn't need any of us at all in his plan. He doesn't need any of us. But he promoted us to a place of glory. See the extremes. See the extremes from where we came from to where he's promoted us to. And now, as we begin to close this lesson, we see what we have the opportunity to be. And this does involve our free will. Turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. 2 Timothy 2, 20. So now that he's made us into vessels of mercy, we have the daily opportunity to live like a vessel of honor. So says Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there we see the opportunity to be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. Remember that? We saw that on Sunday, I think it was. Useful. He can make something useless useful. He's already made us vessels of mercy. He's already taken us from the pits and elevated us and saved us. And now he says, okay, son, what would you like to do with this? You have the chance to be a vessel of honor, which is crazy considering you're just a clay pot. We only have one life to live. And even that comes to us by grace from the Father. So by grace, we can choose to be a vessel of honor to our Father instead of a vessel of dishonor. But this also includes turning away from wickedness and the lies of the world. That's part of the, the deal. That's part of the testing every day, isn't it? So look at the rest of this passage. It includes turning from wickedness and also how we behave towards others if we're going to be a vessel of honor. Look at verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So our foundation and our ability to do this is all based on the mercy of God. Now the Spirit wants me to share a little more with you about myself and my mistakes, and I suppose it's some kind of encouragement for some of you. I used to pray like the Pharisee did in Luke 18. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but we'll get there again. 
And when I first saw that passage in Luke 18 years ago, I was like, oh, bleep. That's me. And I was trapped in arrogance and pride and didn't even realize it until his word shed light on it. And what was the root of the problem? It's the same problem that the Pharisees had. The Pharisee didn't believe he was totally depraved and under the condemnation of sin. Let's face it, we were all brought up, uh, not all, a lot of us were brought up in certain religions that taught us to rely on self or to um, earn your way with God by your own goodness. And so now you're stuck in Phariseeism. It's the way you think, even from a very young age, being brainwashed. So the Pharisee didn't believe he was totally depraved and under the condemnation of sin. And he thought there was something good about himself. And this is why pride is one of the greatest sins in the Bible. It's one of the top seven sins that God hates the most in Proverbs chapter 6. And just like the Spirit hit us with last week, are you thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think? So think about this on the board. A man living in pride is like a direct attack on God. Because pride says, I don't really need God. Pride exalts self instead of exalting God for his mercy. And that, those are kind of the two choices we have. We can either exalt self on a daily basis. And this even goes on in our heart, not just, not just in our overt actions, right? We either are exalting self or we can exalt God for his mercy. And how he's so glorious because of his mercy. Which one are we going to lift up in our hearts? So Luke 18, go to Luke 18, 9 again. Again, a man living in pride is a direct attack on God because pride says, I really don't need God. Pride exalts self instead of exalting God for his mercy. So I'm embarrassed to say I used to pray like this guy. And even that is an example of my pride to this day. Because when you're embarrassed about something, it's your pride in self that's being hurt. Just something to think about. So thus the need to, uh, or for those who exalt themselves to be humbled or humiliated, so then God can lift them up. Look at Luke 18.9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What was so great about the prayer of the tax collector? He lifted up God's mercy. He literally knew this man, apparently, 
could tell by his attitude and even his body language. He literally knew he was nothing, and he needed God's mercy. He was literally throwing himself, you know, on the mercy of the court. Awesome. And Jesus said, that's the man that went home justified. You know what justified means? Declared innocent by the judge. Accepted. Set free. He did the right thing. He relied on, on God's mercy. So in connection to our series, man must admit he's nothing more than a vessel of God's mercy. And then God can exalt him, lift him up, and use him for usefulness in the kingdom. And man must first admit that he cannot justify himself as the Pharisee would not admit. He was stuck in pride. So we're going back to the basics. On the board, Isaiah 64, 6a. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Again, why are man's righteous de deeds so disgusting and unacceptable to God? We saw this this week. One very simple reason. Man's righteous deeds are tainted by sin. Polluted by sin. Even man's, even man's righteous deeds are impure because of the sin within him. So on the board, God demands perfect righteousness. This we know. And due to sin, even our good deeds are unrighteous. Could be a wonderful thing in man's eyes. Unrighteous without Christ. And that's why we all need to be granted the perfect righteousness of Christ to be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the New Living Translation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. There's righteousness, perfect righteousness, made right with God through Christ. That's the only way. So how can any man think he's anything more than just a vessel of mercy? You know, it's that darn flesh that creeps in. But on the board, may we all step back and relish the glorious grace that he lavished upon us as we are nothing more than vessels of mercy. Let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for taking us through your holy scripture and enlightening our hearts. We thank you for the wisdom of your word and your spirit. And we ask, Father, for more faith and humility. We ask that you bring us low if you need to bring us low to get us where you want us to be. We know you want to exalt us, but you can't unless we're humble. And Father, we ask uh, whatever it takes to take us there, to bring us there, and help us learn the easy way, Father. Help us with more faith also to believe in your love for us so we can be set free as you designed us to be set free through the sacrifice of Christ. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go and help us bring the good news out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.